0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money & Markets. We're here with the latest markets and personal finance news of the week. We'll be diving into all the detail on the news that NatWest boss Alison Rose has quit and also looking at the big tech companies announcing results, as well as the first of the big UK banks to report. Joining me this week is Danny Hewson.
1: Hi, Laura. We're going to be covering the financial impact of those awful wildfires in Greece, both on holidaymakers and on investors. We've also got some news about parents raiding their kids' piggy banks. Love that. And I'm chatting to Chris Tennant from Fidelity Emerging Markets about where he sees
0: opportunities from growth forecasts for Latin America. So first up, let's dive into markets. We've got to start with that news that Dame Alison Rose has quit as boss of NatWest after leaking information about why Nigel Farage's accounts with Coots Bank were closed. So Danny, it was quite a swift turnaround from the board giving her full support at about 5pm and then her quitting later that night. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, it is the kind of thing that you'd normally see when it comes to government ministers, but there's such a huge amount of politics involved in this that perhaps that's why. So let's go back to basics, back to the beginning. Nigel Farage's Coots bank accounts were closed. He complained. Lots of noise in the papers. And in the midst of all of this, Alison Rose, then the boss of NatWest, which is the parent company of Coots, spoke to the BBC's business editor. She told him it was a purely commercial reason for the closure, nothing to do with Mr Farage's politics or personal beliefs. But it turns out that wasn't the case. And though Mr Farage has said, look, he had indeed fallen short of the requirements to have a Cootes bank account, um, but it happened in the past and his account hadn't been closed then. And further documentation emerged which showed that Cootes' had taken the measure this time because Mr Farage's political views did not align with the views of the bank. So the row rumbled on. Ministers rushed through new laws requiring banks to explain why they're debanking a person and then give a 90-day notice period before doing so. But until this morning, the early hours of this morning, Alison Rose really looked like she was going to fight on. And as you say last night, the bank board issued a statement saying it had full confidence. But then both the Treasury and Number 10 issued comments expressing concern. And remember that NatWest is still 39% owned by the taxpayer. So what the government says really has a bearing A couple of hours later, just after midnight, just in time to be caught on the hop for doing morning news programmes, she'd agreed to step down by mutual consent. Now... Banks, you've got to remember, are a crucial part of the country's infrastructure. We trust them with our paychecks, with the mortgages that keep our roofs over our heads and loans to fund business expansion. They are held to a higher standard and so are their bosses. So I guess with hindsight, there really was no way that Alison Rose could have stayed in post because she broke the most basic of tenants. She handed over confidential customer information to a journalist. The question now, of course, though, is, is her head the only head that will roll? Because there have been calls by Nigel Farage for the chairman to go because he is responsible for governments, also calls for the boss of Coots to go um, as well. What we do know is that this isn't over. Bank bosses have met virtually with the city minister, Andrew Griffith, this morning. We're recording this lunchtime on Wednesday, discussing potential new measures like whether new conditions should be added to banking licences. Now, the Treasury said that banking bosses agreed that what has happened has eroded public trust. As for Alison Rose, look... I think she's a huge loss. You know, she was the first female boss of a big UK bank. She was a woman who'd climbed through the ranks to reach the top. She'd made huge strides in increasing diversity and inclusion in financial services, particularly focused on getting more women into finance. In terms of NatWest, Paul Thwaite, the current chief exec of the company's commercial and institutional business, is going to step up as interim chief executive. There's going to be a hunt now for another chief executive, but We are now in a situation where clearly trust has been eroded and I don't think anyone will be surprised that the bank is the biggest faller on the FTSE 100 today with shares down more than 4%.
0: And it's not long until their AGM and I imagine a large host of the questions will be focused on what's happened. And I would not want to be in the person's shoes who's having to answer all of those questions. <laughs> but uh, let's move on to the other big news of the week, which was on pretty much every front page today, which is those wildfires in Greece. Now, obviously, the human impact is huge, and has been well covered by lots of outlets. But we wanted to look just at the, the market impact. So Danny, has it had an impact on on markets at this kind of peak holiday season?
1: Yeah, it absolutely has. We saw hundreds of millions of pounds wiped off the value of London-listed airline stocks this week as family summer holidays. As you say, look, they've been thrown into doubt because of these uh, heat waves and the wildfires. We've seen shares in EasyJet, British Airways owner IAG, TUI, Wizz Air and Jet2 sink lower as Greek authorities, of course, had to step up tourist evacuations from resorts like Rhodes and Corfu. These are incredibly popular places for British holidaymakers to go. Um, as we record this Wednesday lunchtime, Wizz Air down 7.6%, EasyJet 5.1%, Jet2 down 3.6%, 2ENIAG 3.2% and 2.4% respectively. We know that there have been very different responses from airlines to to what's going on. EasyJet, Jet2 and TUI were among the first to confirm that they were sending repatriation flights for British tourists. Um, We've also had Jet2, TUI and Thomas Cook all cancelling holidays to Rhodes. I think the really important thing is to check before you travel. There are also questions, of course, about what you're covered for and and whether you should still go if your flight is operating. Ryanair is still operating a full schedule of flights to Greece, including the island of Rhodes. And of course, you know, not everyone books a package holiday. Some people are booking bits and pieces separately. So they might have booked their flights, their hotels, their car, everything differently. So Laura, what can holidaymakers do.
0: Yeah, so some airlines and holiday companies have cancelled flights and they're refunding people, um, so you would have been contacted. Now, lots of these holiday companies aren't looking too far out, so at the moment they would be cancelling holidays for people who were due to fly this week. People might have questions if they're planning on flying later in August, but we just don't know what the situation will be at that point, and so not many holiday companies will be offering you a refund that far in advance. Lots of airlines, so for example British Airways, EasyJet are offering flexibility to move flights. If you're out there and your trip is cut short because your accommodation isn't usable, um, because you would be in a dangerous position, and you're on a package holiday, then you are entitled to a refund, but it's only a partial refund. And the cost of the flights will be deducted. So your flights out there and home, and any time that you've already been out there. So you might get back less than you think. Say you're a week into a holiday and you're only actually losing a week of accommodation, you might get back much less than you really. Because flights will make up such a big portion of that package holiday cost. Um, If the accommodation is fine, but you're just choosing to return because you you know, you don't want to put yourself in a dangerous situation or you're worried about staying there, then the holiday company doesn't actually have to offer you anything. And at that point, it would be a case of speaking to your travel insurance provider. And that just varies hugely depending on the type of travel insurance you've got, how comprehensive the policy is. And so that's a case where you'd really need to speak to your insurance provider. And it's a good idea to speak to them before you do anything so some people might be tempted to just book the first flight home um, get out of there and obviously if you're in danger and that's important to you you should do that but don't do it on the assumption that your insurance company is definitely going to reimburse you and it's always worthwhile if you've got time to contact your insurance company ahead of time and work out what compensation you would be entitled to what costs they'll cover and what costs they won't so that you don't end up with a bill at the end of it. Um, if the travel company does cancel the trip ahead of you flying out, then you'll get a full refund. Some airlines like BA are offering rebooking rather than an automatic refund. So this is something that we saw of a lot during the early stages of the pandemic when lots of people's flights and holidays were cancelled. That lots of airlines offered vouchers rather than a cash refund. Um It's a similar case here where some default to offering rebooking rather than an automatic refund, which, I mean, if you're a family who's constrained to traveling in the summer holidays, that's not necessarily going to be a great option for you. Yes, you might be able to move your annual leave. You might be able to move your holiday to the end of the summer holidays this year, but if you're booking now presumably your accommodation costs are going to be far higher than when you perhaps book this holiday maybe six months ago so it's kind of down to personal decision and a bit of research about whether that is a good option but if your trip's further out you just need to wait and see what happens if you cancel now you won't be entitled to a refund if you cancel now it's very unlikely that your travel insurance would offer you any compensation because we just don't know what the situation is going to be like in even two weeks time so um, the best advice there is to kind of of hold out speak to your travel insurance um, provider Um, and that's the other big key is if you've got a trip booked you need to be buying travel insurance at the time that you book the trip not just for the period that you're away for because that means that any problems like this that happen before your trip you're still covered so that's obviously not of huge help to people that are heading off on holiday and don't have insurance yet but it's a good kind of learning for the future and a good reminder for all of us.
1: I've got lots of um, friends with school age kids. So I've got lots of friends who've been in this situation, either they've been out in roads, and then, you know, really um, worried about getting home and being put on one of the repatriation flights, and also friends who are having to rebook holidays. And as you say, that they're paying much more cash in order to do that. But I think, you know, the fact that we are seeing summers getting increasingly hot, there's been lots of discussion about whether or not insurers will start to feature things like heat in their insurance policies. Because, you know, if you've got young kids, I remember it being absolutely miserable, stuck in 40 degree heat, not being able to sleep, and not having air conditioning. So, you know, it, it's it's a lot to think about, isn't
0: it? Yeah, it's definitely something that people, I think, are going to be much more aware of as they're booking holidays next year. Alas, the weather is not so good here. So, the whole idea of a staycation <laughs> can't easily be sold with the rainfall that we're seeing at the moment. But um, let's dive back into some more of the market's news then. So, we've had some big tech giants report this week, haven't we, Danny? Should we start with Microsoft?
1: Yeah, I'm going to rattle through these because there have been a huge number of companies reporting earnings. We are properly now in earnings season. And yeah, let's start with Microsoft. Uh, It beat expectations, posted better than expected revenues in the three months to June, up uh, 8% on the same period last year. 7% had been expected Now, part of that was a better performance from its cloud computing business. There'd been a lot of talk before these results that we expected cloud computing business really to slow down. And although growth has slowed, and that is something that really rattled investors and is likely behind the share price fall in after hours trading about 4%, it it was still fairly resilient. But the bit creating excitement is the company's AI rollout. That is the buzzword of the moment. It's obviously invested in OpenAI, which is the brain behind chatbot. Um, It rolled that out to the Bing search engine, and it's also integrating AI now into lots of its software. So Things like helping you write emails and and deal with your calendar. You know, I mean, some of these things in the future will be like, well, why didn't we always have that? Because they'll make sense. And some of the things seem frankly scary. And all of these advances do come with a price tag. And it's that spend on CapEx that's also unsettled, I think. But, you know, I've been looking and the stock is up 46% since the start of the year. Tech stocks have really been on a roll. And, and some of that is AI excitement. Some is the expectation that the Fed's rate hiking cycle is nearing an end. And some, I think, is investors may be switching out of the banking sector after the wobble there with the collapse of banks like Silicon Valley. So there may Also, I think potentially have been a bit of profit taking going on last night, Um, but we're going to move on to Google's parent company Alphabet because it also had um, really good years so far in terms of its share price up 38% since the start of the year. And it's another tech giant that's confounded expectations uh, for very different reasons. And in this case, it shares jumped in after hours trading, mostly because of a huge improvement in advertising revenue. You know, there's been huge concern, hasn't there, that the cost of living crisis would really eat into ad sales. And and that has happened in some cases, but those traditional markets like Google have remained strong. I think advertisers looking for security in where they're putting their money. And if they've had decent returns in the past, then they might think, okay, well, I, I know what Google gives me. And despite the fact that people are going back to bricks and water, we've still seen pretty strong online sales. Um, so, so I think that has also played in. Um, it also consolidated its earnings in the cloud space. And all of this robust business and, and real focus on growth means that it now has room to focus in on AI. Yeah, AI, absolutely. And um, I'm just going to rattle through a couple of quick subscription services to note. uh, Netflix reported last Thursday, so after we recorded last week's pod, it saw subscriber numbers jump thanks to a crackdown on password sharing. But revenue softened. Uh, Lots of people you know, been plumping for that cheaper ad-supported options that it has brought in. Uh, also, Spotify. Now, it announced a price hike in its premium subscription services. Um, only a quid, um, but still, you know, if you're thinking about where your cash is going, a quid here, a quid there, it all adds up um, it's also trying to generate more cash because it's doubling down on cost-saving measures. It's laid off a lot of staff, um, but its losses widened. And I think this was something that that really sort of captured attention. It went from 125 million euros to 320 million euros. Now, some of that is down to one-off costs. It took a 39 million euro hit from podcasts after cancelling a string of deals, including the highly publicised one between Harry and Meghan. But the good news is that it did put on the number of paid subscribers, adding 10 million new paid subscribers in Q2. But I don't know about you, Laura, but I've really been taking a look at the number of subscriptions that I have. And frankly, I've been astonished at how many subscriptions I still have, despite the fact that at the beginning of this year, I did sort of take a red pen to them. But I'm going again, because I've suddenly realized I don't need two music subscription services, no matter what my kids say. And I don't need four different streaming services. I mean, how many teleprograms can you watch? I guess you're little one is not yet in a position to say mama want disney
0: no i mean any platform that has peppa pig on she would be behind me spending about a thousand pounds a month on <laughs> And i am not but yeah i think with these price rises it is making everyone think oh, okay it's you know like you say it's only a pound here or there but if each of your subscription services is going up by that little bit actually does really add up and makes you really question. I've started doing a bit of hopping between them. So, you know, having a subscription service for a few months, watching the content that I want to watch on there, then canceling, moving to a different streaming service, watching some content on there. I'm not sure that approach is going to fly with your teenage daughters, but it kind of <laughs> works for me and means that we're not paying out for five different ones at a time. But Disney Plus is a f- permanent fixture in my house, if only just for Bluey, which is a children's TV program for anyone who don't have kids and don't have to suffer the torture of children's <laughs> TV. <laughs> um now, we've already touched on banks, but Lloyd's has been the first of the big UK banks to report this week. They are under the spotlight at the moment, uh, even aside from the whole Nigel Farage situation. Banks have been facing the focus of the government when it comes to mortgage and savings rates. So was there any mention of that, any defense of that in Lloyd's results?
1: Yeah, um... We've had a lot of commentary about the cost of living crisis and the impact that it is having on both savers and lenders. Um, Top line here is that uh, the headline figure for the first half is a whopping 23% hike in profits. Net interest margin, so the difference between savings and loan rates, slipped slightly to 3.14% between April and June. That's down from the 3.22% in the first three months of the year. Um, there have been expectation
0: that it would fall further. Um, so does that maybe hint that the, you know, the government's pressure on this net interest margin, so this gap between what banks are offering and savings rates and mortgage rates, does that hint that maybe some of that pressure is working if that net interest margin dropped by a bit? I think
1: there is certainly um, an understanding that regulators are looking really hard at this and banks are saying that they recognize that they do need to look at the rates that they are paying savers. And they have really doubled down on that. We've seen some decent saving rates. But we were also told at the start of the year when we started to see these huge profits come in that this slowing of growth on the net interest margin would start to happen. And in fact, that it would start to fall away in exactly the, the way that it has, although not quite as much as many people would have expected. Um Remember this is um, the UK's biggest mortgage lender so uh, what we saw is, is commentary that around 200,000 of its mortgage holders were experiencing some kind of stress. Um, and that uh, it was hyper-aware that it would have to take steps to try and protect people, set aside um, today almost £700 million extra to deal with bad loans. So that really does indicate some level of concern about customers defaulting on debt. Um, The banking group's boss, Charlie Nunn, Acknowledged that, um, you know, cost of living pressures were proving challenging. He did say that the bank was proactively supporting customers and offering higher savings rate. Also said that didn't expect the UK would fall into recession later uh, next year. Um, it, it had expected that would be the case. So that's a, a little bit of hope, I think, um, being um, sort of put out to the UK. Um, also said that it now expected that Bank of England interest rates should peak at 5.5%. So that's way below the 7% that uh, some in the city were talking about just a couple of weeks ago, obviously, after that fall in inflation. But you're absolutely right. I mean, banks under a huge amount of scrutiny. And what's happened today with Alison Rhodes and this whole situation with Nigel Farage it is just going to keep the focus very much on them, um, at least for the foreseeable future.
0: And of course, we've got that rate hike coming later this week or may have already happened, depending on when people are listening. And so that kind of doubles down that focus on banks. If we see another increase, which is widely what's expected, then it's again, the focus is on how do banks respond to that in terms of both savings and mortgage rates.
1: Yeah, and we're not going to talk about uh, what's going on with the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank because we'll have decisions uh, from then after we've recorded this podcast. So I'm sure if you've got any interest in central banks, you'll be well across that anyway. Now, there's so much going on at the moment and so many companies reporting. We could have spoken about Unilever, Reckitt Smith GlaxoSmithKline. Um, we just don't have time in this podcast to get to all of those. But remember, Shares Magazine is available, fantastic resource, and it will keep you up to date on all things connected with earnings season. Um Laura, we know cost of living um, has been a huge issue for a lot of families, really pushed them to the limits of their budgets. Um, And yet, I think I'm still surprised to learn that some parents are raiding their children's saving accounts. What's going on?
0: I know. So this is some research done by Direct Line. And it found that since the start of this year, £4.1 billion has been pulled from children's accounts. So that's equivalent to £13 million every day this year. And what they found is that one in five parents or grandparents have taken money that they had set aside for children to cover things like rising mortgage costs, rising bills, um, and they're dipping into their kids' piggy banks. Now, obviously, they might actually also be digging into the old piggy banks, but this is talking about actual savings accounts that have been set aside for children. I think it's really interesting when we consider that the trend, if we wind back about three years. Um, the trend during the pandemic was we saw this huge surge in saving for children. Lots of people were sitting around, they had more spare cash, not everyone granted but lots of people had more spare cash and they also crucially had spare time and so all of those things on their admin to-do list that they've been meaning to tick off, they tackled and a big one of those was saving for children. So we saw lots of people start investing for children, setting up junior Isis for children, setting up children's savings accounts. This is now the flip side of that. And it's where families are really facing the crunch. They've exhausted all of the kind of basic budgeting things that we always talk about. And they're still not able to make ends meet. So they're diving into those savings. And I think it's interesting this kind of full circle that we've come and I think there probably is a cautionary tale in this for parents and grandparents. And it's that old very overused adage of you know put on your own life vest before you help others and it's really about focusing when you're saving for children and grandchildren making sure that you've set aside enough money for yourself because if you'd saved this money into a junior ISA account, that money is locked up until the child is 18. So you wouldn't be able to dip into it. You can't access that money until your child turns 18. Now, this is obviously money in children's savings accounts, so you can access that money. But it's quite a cautionary tale, I think, of like, when the times are good, make sure that you've provided enough of an emergency fund and investments and savings for yourself before you get started with the kids. And I think often, there's a real feel good feeling of putting aside money for your kids future. And it's a great thing to do don't get me wrong but you need to make sure that you're providing for yourself and you've got enough cushion for yourself before you start thinking about the kids fix the
1: roof while the sun shines that is something I'm hyper aware of because it's been raining so much and my roof has started leaking um, oh, no. maybe I should raid the kids savings pots in order to pay for that that sounds like a we good know plan. what you're
0: off to do after this shake those piggy banks <laughs>
1: <laughs> now it's time for this week's interview. And with China still disappointing when it comes to post-COVID growth, some investors are looking to other emerging markets for opportunities. I've been talking to Chris Tennant, Co-Portfolio Manager of Fidelity Emerging Markets, about how he sees Mexico benefiting from US plans to nearshore supply chains and how other parts of Latin America are poised to benefit from the transition to a low carbon economy. What is it about emerging markets that excites you, particularly at the moment?
2: I think there's, there's a number of reasons why at this point in time in particular, emerging markets are, are an extremely exciting asset class. I think the, the, the most obvious one is that you've had a, a huge sort of interest rate cycle in emerging market countries and really places like Brazil and, and Mexico are the poster child um, um, there. And if we take Brazil as, as an example, you've had interest rates hike to almost 14%. And at the same time, inflation is is coming under control a lot more quickly in emerging markets than it is in in developed markets. So um, the rate of inflation in, in Brazil is, is 3% today and declining very quickly. So you have real interest rates at, at around the 10% level, which um, is obviously extremely high. And as we start to go into, um, into an interest rate cutting cycle, there's a long way to fall for, for emerging market countries. And that provides a sort of a huge stimulus for for the consumer in in a country like Brazil. So as we look forward over the next 12, 18 months, we're going to see rates start coming down very soon. And and that's a big, big tailwind for for a lot of countries in, in EM. Now, they
1: do look very cheap, a lot of emerging market stocks. For some people, that might sound alarm bells. Is it a reason to steer clear?
2: So I think the the, the emerging markets are, are cheap for a number of, a number of reasons. So firstly, it was it's the um, the interest rate environment that I mentioned before. That's been a huge sort of burden on on the consumer over the past couple of years or so, and that's hurt sentiment towards some of the sort of consumer facing sectors. Um, and then obviously there's the um, the heightened sort of geopolitical um, risk environment with the um, with the war in Russia, and that that's also sort of damaged um, sentiment towards emerging markets. But russia is now out of um out of the um, index so it's no longer a, a constituent um, of the emerging markets and then finally there's concerns around the property sector and in china where if you look over the last few years the level of construction that was taking place was um was not sustainable and we've seen um that that activity um rebase at a, at a lower level and i think now um we're searched, we're seeing signs of stabilization there so um, I think that those were the issues that damage sentiment towards emerging market, but there's a number of um, sort of positives when you look forward, um, the, the sort of lower interest rate outlook, as I, as I already mentioned, but also um, the, the sort of recovery in, in demand in, in China. I think um, whilst it will be much more gradual than the recovery um, that we've seen in developed markets post-COVID, I think the same sort of long-term um, trends will, will, will provide a, a boost to the consumer there as well. There was a huge amount of excess savings built up um, during lockdowns, and that will will see its way into um, into consumer spending eventually. It's just a much more sort of gradual path of of recovery for for a number of reasons, and and I think that's that's going to provide a boost uh, to emerging markets as well. So yeah, you have the positive outlook for for interest rates and and also a sort of a cyclical recovery in, in Chinese consumer, which I think will will um, yeah will play out over the next couple of years.
1: I mean, China just seems to, at the moment, consistently be disappointing with its growth trajectory. You know, there's a huge amount of excitement one day, and then it seems to be quashed the next.
2: Yeah. I think if you look at what happened at the start of the year, um, markets got extremely excited too quickly about the sort of China reopening. And it will be a much more gradual recovery than we've seen elsewhere in in the world. Um, firstly because the um, the consumer um, was under a much more sort of draconian lockdown environment um, and so it takes sentiment a lot longer to, to to recover and then and then around what's going on in the property market. so um, um, the sort of decline in, in, in property activity has has hurt sentiment as well and we're starting to see signs of that that that, um, that, that market stabilizing um, the direction for policy in in, in China property is, is towards um is towards stimulus and reflation, and and eventually this will help um, put a floor in in the market. So, um yeah, I think whilst the recovery will be much slower um than than it has been elsewhere in the world, the direction of travel is still positive, and um and yeah, we we will see these stocks recover eventually.
1: Do you think investors? I mean, traditionally, China when we're talking about emerging markets, that's really been a focus for investors. Do you think they're now? looking further afield, maybe trying to find opportunities elsewhere. I mean, you were speaking about Brazil and I know Latin America in particular at the moment is somewhere that investors are interested in but are also maybe a little nervous about.
2: Yeah, I I definitely think that's the case. And um, yeah, partly that's because of the sort of heightened sort of geopolitical tensions between the US and and China. Um, You're seeing a lot of companies shift their, their supply chains Away from China into other emerging market economies, and um, that that has been a sort of a, a key focus for for ourselves over over recent months. We we just came back from a trip in Mexico where we visited a number of a number of cities, um, and it was um, yeah it was incredible to see the sort of um, booming demand environment um, uh, for manufacturing. So the the cost of sort of manufacturing labor in Mexico, depending on how you measure it, is is about thirty percent below coastal China. So. Um, companies in the U.S. that are shifting uh, manufacturing um, roles back to back to Mexico are able to benefit not just from that cheaper labor force, but also a um, a manufacturing hub closer to home. So it reduces the time it takes to, to ship goods to, to the U.S. and it and it's a huge sort of um, huge benefit for many many companies in, in Mexico. And yeah, that's why it's, it's important to get out to these countries and, and meet with the smaller companies that are that are benefiting from these um, from these trends.
1: I was going to ask about that. So you actually get out on the ground, you talk to the companies, you make sure that the kind of risks that they are taking, the kind of ethos that they have fits with your investor.
2: Yeah, it's a hugely important part of, of, of what we do. We will travel to all of the countries that we, we invest in and um, yeah, a, a, num- a number of trips every year. And we have a, a big team of um, portfolio managers and, and analysts that are um, that, are, that are meeting these companies regularly. So yeah, as I mentioned, Mexico is the, the last trip we did and in, in a couple of months we'll be, um, we'll be out to the Middle East to go to um, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE. Yeah, and it's, it, it's incredibly important to get a, a lot of insight into the, these companies that we're looking to invest in. A lot of them will not travel to, to London to meet investors. So um, getting out there to meet management team at their offices or at their manufacturing facilities or their assets is, is incredibly important. And whilst you're out there, you also have the opportunity to speak to their customers, speak to their suppliers, um, and get a sort of more of a holistic understanding of um, yeah their their supply chain and and um, and the quality of the business. So um, yeah, it's an incredibly important part of what we do. And the, um, the 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 Fidelity Emerging Market Trust has the ability to invest in smaller companies. So um, getting out there and, and and meeting these smaller businesses is is incredibly important because they're often. Um, overlooked by um, the sort of the sell side. And um, yeah, the only way to really sort of um, get an understanding of the industry is to get out there and meet them.
1: Because investors can't go and do that. And as you say, these businesses are not coming to London to talk to investors. So what kind of assessments are you making on the ground? What sort of metrics can people sort of look to when they're thinking about investing in emerging markets like these?
2: Um, so I think yeah the, the the types of questions that we're well going out there and seeing the assets and and speaking to the, the management teams is 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 incredibly important. Um, so that 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 is the um, yeah the, the 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 most important thing about um, investing. Well, going to travel to see these smaller investments. So I would say yeah, visiting the assets, seeing um, the companies in their. Um, in in their um, yeah the environment that they they operate in and and that that's how you sort of get a really good understanding for these businesses um, yeah and I guess understanding the corporate governance of these companies is incredibly important so um, it's um, particularly in emerging markets um, there are many stakeholders governments sort of local um, unions um, shareholders like ourselves um, controlling shareholders so um, getting a, a sort of a good understanding on on uh, the corporate governance of the company is incredibly important as well. And so we'll meet board the boards and, and various stakeholders of, of each company we invest in to sort of get conviction on that.
1: And do you think that the risk is priced in?
2: Yeah, I think it, it depends on 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 the country that, that, that you're looking at. I think that um emerging markets are the cheapest they've been in a very long time relative to developed markets for some of the reasons we've discussed already. And that's where the opportunity lies. Yeah. I think um the risk is, is priced into a, a, a lot of um, emerging market economies, um, and so um, yeah, and you have a number of tailwinds going forward. So it's important to to acknowledge that emerging markets are inherently more volatile than 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 developed markets. So um, the the um, the risk of a sort of a recession in in the US has weighed on on various sectors, particularly where um, they're supplying um, electronic goods to 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 the likes of the US and Europe. So. Um, yeah, there, there, are, there are areas that are, that are um, um, where, where um, that risk has been fully discounted already.
1: Because we have heard from the likes of Suella Braverman that Asia and other emerging markets are, are likely to be huge areas of growth over the next few years. While of course, you know, we're just looking at uh, numbers from the UK and stagnant at best so how do investors spot the right opportunities because they don't they're not household names that they're investing in and, and that can make it a little bit nerve-wracking
2: yeah I, I completely agree with those statements and I think um, India is probably the poster child of what will drive um, growth not just in emerging markets but the global economy over the next decade or so and so um, when we look at the Indian market I think a lot of people understand that you have phenomenal demographic trends, a growing sort of middle class in India. And the growth outlook for the next 10 years is, is incredibly attractive, but you have to look at the, um, the sort of the, um, the valuations of the businesses that you're investing in. So really our focus is, is on Indian financials because, um, these companies benefit and HDFC would be the best example there, um, HDFC bank. And really they bet, they benefit from all these sort of long-term positive growth, growth dynamics. Um, a rising sort of financial inclusion um, as people get wealthier they use more financial products so you're able to um, you're able to get access to this um, fantastic growth story without paying 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 up for it um, to get, to begin with and by contrast if you were to look at some of the um, the consumer sectors in in, in, in India um, some of these stocks are trading at multiples of sort of 50 60 times earnings so um, a lot of that growth is already discounted in the share prices that you see today. So you have to be careful um, that you don't pay too much for that that growth opportunity, and then we will look to other countries, um, particularly around Southeast Asia. I think Vietnam is is a um, a country that will also benefit from um, benefit from that sort of shift in supply chains away from China. Um, there you have um, a much cheaper labor force, um, much stronger sort of demographics, and an example there where the the trust is invested in would be a company called FPT, which is a IT consulting business which has um, a highly skilled um, labor pool. Um, they have their own university which is creating um, um, IT graduates um, and the um, the cost of labor is much lower than um, places like China or even India. So they're benefiting from, uh, from that sort of um, diversification of supply chains globally.
1: You spoke about obviously looking into a company's corporate governance. But then when you're talking about the labor force being cheaper, that will ring an alarm bell for some people who worry about the kind of environmental, social governance, those big factors, which there are big questions in some of these countries about how they treat their labour force. And that potentially, again, is incredibly off-putting and potentially a risk to the investment.
2: Yeah, I think I mean, that's definitely something that we we look very very carefully at, um, and so I think you you can um, yeah you can sort of um, ha- there are there are different types of when I when I say cheaper labor, these are IT graduates that are earning sort of fantastic salaries for for, for, for where they live, and their quality of life is um, is increased substantially as a result of being employed by a company like FPT, the likes of of, of, of company that we would avoid investing in would be more in the, um, I guess in, if there was a, a consumer company, um, that was producing, um, producing, uh, apparel using, um, extremely cheap, um, sources of labor, um, where, um, the, the sort of the, the, the they're being paid below living standards, for example, that sort of thing we, we would look to avoid, but there are still, there still are sort of huge beneficiaries from, uh, from, um, yeah, this, um, this sort of shift in, in, in labor. The Indian consulting businesses would be another example. The likes of Emphasis, um, where um, they are, um, their consultants are a lot cheaper than um, a consultant in, in the US, um, so it makes sense for um, a US business to outsource um, um, coding or computer coding to, 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 to a company like Emphasis, um, but the employees are treated very fairly and, 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 and a, a very good living wage.
1: So we've talked about the S and we've talked about the uh, G but I just want to end by talking about the E cuz environment climate change clearly creating some concerns some risk but also opportunities how is that factoring into the kind of investment decisions that you're making
2: Yes yeah, so whenever we make an investment decision we'll look at the um the environmental impacts on on the business and I'll I'll give just one Sector as an as, as an example because it's one of the most sort of profoundly impacted would be um, would be copper mining for example and there climate change has both an impact on on the supply and the demand outlook so on the supply side you have increased sort of weather disruptions um, heavy rainfall in in Chile we've seen in the last year for example means that a lot of these mines are not able to produce at the levels that they were historically so you have um, climate change impacting the supply side and on the demand side um climate change really has a has a huge impact on on sort of transition metals and um countries building out sort of grids to support electrification of 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 automobiles um that is that is extremely copper intensive so climate change also has a has a has an impact on on the demand side and 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 that's really the, the the one of the sort of the core reasons why we're we're heavily invested in the in the copper mining sector we see it as a space that um um benefits enormously from from climate change and commodities would be the most impacted sector um but there are there are other um sort of secondary um second order I- impacts on if we were look. to look at um, food retailers in south africa for example and they've been investing heavily in in in, in solar energy production and that allows them to sort of um, remove themselves from relying on the grid and, um, and it, so it has a benefit for, for sectors like food retail in, in South Africa, where you might not like, expect climate change to have a, um, have a big impact.
0: Chris, thank you so much for your time. It's been ah. great to talk to you.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So we are now going on a summer break. Um, unfortunately that doesn't mean that Danny and I are jetting off to some (laughs) wonderful holiday resort but we are taking a break from the podcast for a few weeks so giving all of us presenters a well-earned break there won't be any episodes for a couple of weeks but we will be back at the end of August with all of your latest updates we won't attempt to update on what's happened through the entire summer at that point but we will be back with all of your latest markets and personal finance news you can always listen to back editions of the episode if you're missing us lots while we're off but otherwise have a great summer and we will see you then before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of aj bell
1: or shares magazine the podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not and don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it it's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.